Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kabitko here, and this is the Centered from Reality podcast. It's Tuesday afternoon. Here it is just insanely windy, like crazily windy. I went on a run this morning, and it kind of just felt like I was going nowhere. Got stuff blown in my eyes, and on the way back, I felt like I could just like put on wings and fly. So, you know, the weather's different. Another day, something else chaotic. So, good old Chicago, right? Also, um, the U.S. just wrapped up its Group B games of the World Cup, which was quite interesting to watch, to be completely honest. So the U.S. is moving on to play the Netherlands, and yeah, they beat Iran. The team does not allow a lot of gores, or goals, gores, <laughs> sorry, doesn't allow a lot of goals, which is interesting. They also struggled to score, but today they scored on Iran, and it was a well-fought game. It was nice to see, and you have to feel a little bit for the Iranians who really put out a good season. You could see the pain and the sadness when they didn't actually end up winning. And, you know, like I said on yesterday's episode, it would have been interesting to see them go further just to keep their message alive. One also has to assume that once they get back home into Iran, they're going to have some backlash for the fact that they didn't sing along to the national anthem and that they clearly have political ideologies that don't maybe agree with the regime. So, that is interesting to see. It's too bad they didn't win, but of course, it's good to see the United States did. So the World Cup has been interesting. And while I was wrapping up the game, I was reading online that, and I saw actually a video as well, and it's really interesting. In the Kurdish parts of Iran, apparently people are actually celebrating the, the, the loss of Iran's team, which I guess if you kind of think about it, it sort of makes sense. I mean, the Kurds have not been treated well. Like, Obviously, these protests, like the Iranian government has really cracked down on everyone, but they've really cracked down on the Kurds lately, so that's not particularly surprising. But it's just funny to see some of these videos of people like in the Kurdish parts, mainly Kurds, shooting off fireworks and celebrating the fact that their own country's team is losing. And I think, for me, that's very telling of kind of what the situation is really like in Iran. And... Again, if I was the Iranian government, much like the Chinese government right now in other parts of the world, I wouldn't be happy about this this amount of discontent that is kind of spreading throughout the country. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Speaking of the Kurds as well, before we move on, I also saw that there's warnings from the United States and other allied countries that Turkish forces may invade parts of northern Syria. This is the Kurdish region of, of Syria. And we have to remember that places like Iran and Turkey have been waging somewhat wars against Kurdish populations for a while. I, I've talked to my Turkish friends who think the Kurds are problematic, but from an outside angle, it seems like a lot of these regimes and governments are singling out the Kurds and demonizing them and waging wars. So we're going to have to keep following that. I'll probably talk about that maybe later in the week once there's more information. But I thought that was interesting to see that there are U.S threats about some sort of Turkish invasion in northern Syria. You know, maybe if I get around to it this week or next week, it would be interesting just to talk about, kind of do a more evergreen episode and talk about the situation of the Kurds throughout the world, because in a lot of ways, they seem to be kind of marginalized and demonized and always treated as outsiders everywhere they go, kind of much like the Roma population or, you know, Jewish populations throughout history, where they always are kind of treated as the outsider and picked on and alienated and acts of aggression and violence are taken on them. So interesting to see what's going to happen there. Hopefully our intelligence is wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised because the Turkish have been doing these type of 
invasions and attacks on Kurdish forces for quite a while now. So, again, nothing would really surprise me at this point, but we'll have to keep our eyes out. Moving on, I, I wasn't going to talk about this, but then I was like, maybe I want to, and then I went, I went back and forth for a while on this, but I, I want to talk about Balenciaga for a second, or as Ben Shapiro said on his show a few days ago, Balenciaga or something like that. Uh, I don't know if he was joking or just he's never heard it. Um, it's, you know, it's commonly talked about in pop culture, but I guess he listens to mainly orchestra music, so maybe he just is out of touch with pop culture. But anyways, that doesn't matter. I'm not a big Ben Shapiro guy anymore, but... That's not what I'm talking about. Balenciaga's had kind of a, I guess you could say, interesting week. I don't really know how else to say it. Um, I first was made aware of this briefly because just on social media and on Instagram and on CNN, I saw there were some videos about Balenciaga, weird ad. And then, of course, I saw some conspiracy theories on Reddit and all this stuff. So I was like, okay. I kind of blew it off. You know, the holidays had other things to do. So I didn't really think much about it. Then I listened to Tim Dillon, a comedian I like. I listened to his Patreon episode, and he did a whole, you know, kind of rant comedy skit um, joke session about it, basically. But I'll get into just, I guess, the background here. I, I actually haven't watched the whole ad because it's actually hard to find the ad itself. I did a deep dive, oh, probably two nights ago to see if I could find it, and I didn't. But I did find segments and pictures, so yeah. And I'm not going to play the ad on here because it's creepy, and yeah. Don't want to get this t- taken down, so, you know. But anyways, Balenciaga put out an ad. Now they've obviously taken the ad down. But it shows kids holding teddy bears. And, I mean, I guess the best way to put it is they're kind of BTS, bondage, sexual exploitation teddy bears. And the kids are holding them for part of the ad. And then the ad goes away and shows a desk. And there's some documents on the desk. And, you know, that's fine. Documents on the desk. Cool. But the thing is, the documents that are on the desk relate back to a court case that involves child pornography. Yeah. So it starts out with teddy bears in bondage gear and kids are holding them and then it goes to a table with documents involving a child porn case. And the case is escaping my head right now, but I guarantee you it's true. I've looked it up and uh, I also looked at the photos and it seems like it's corroborated that yes, there's some random damn documents on the desk that involve a child porn case. And you're going, this is weird, right? Like, why were those documents there? Now, Balenciaga's, well, and also why were kids holding these bondage bears, these BTS bears, whatever you want to say. All of it's particularly strange, in my opinion. And Balenciaga now has taken down the ad, and they've come out with a statement basically blaming this advertising agency, I believe it is, that was responsible for the ad. And they've kind of, you know, pushed responsibility over to them. But you have to wonder, like, look, if you're a company like Balenciaga, like, wouldn't you probably be monitoring what your ads are going to look like, even if you've outsourced it to a, to a separate company? I, I would think so, personally. But it's, it's just really weird because they've, they've kind of deflected it to them. And then at the same time, they've said, they've apologized for the document that was on the table, like I said, a court case involving child porn. And they've also apologized for the poor taste of the teddy bears. Okay, fine and dandy. But, but it, it, I guess my biggest question is, like, why were those documents there, right? Like, why were there documents literally related to a child porn case that went in front of the courts in the United States? Again, I, I have always been against all the QAnon-related stuff, you know, but this doesn't really help the conspiracies there when, like, someone had to have known what they were placing there, right? Like, I don't know how else to to say it. Like, 
you accidentally have documents lying around, fine. But when one of the documents turns out to be something like that, especially after the ad with the bears and the kids and stuff, it's just weird. And probably the most simple answer to it, which I hope is the, the correct one, I really do hope, is that they have some employee in the ad agency who is fucking with them or is very deranged. You know, I, I don't know if it was like a troll to Balenciaga, try to just make Balenciaga look stupid. I would kind of hope that's the case. But it still just is odd, okay? It's very damn odd. Um, and it's just not a good look when there's always conspiracies out there about, you know, these modeling agencies and these fashion companies exploiting children. It's not great when you have this ad come out. And I do encourage people to look up the ad if you're curious. But it... It's disturbing, and I'm sure some people will try to, like, walk that back and say, it's oh, it's not that bad. I mean, yes, it's pretty bad. And uh, Tim Dillon does, you know, his whole – does a whole sketch kind of on his podcast about this. And I think he's he's so right, and it's hilarious how he says it, so I won't try to, you know, copy what he says. But he just jokes about how this is lovely that this ad came out right before Thanksgiving because now you're going to sit down at Thanksgiving dinner and your crazy uncle is going to now feel – vindicated about these like QAnon conspiracies and he's going to go have you seen that uh have you seen the tape have you seen that Balenciaga ad see see they've been doing this for years and yeah nice time to put out a little wholesome family ad that vindicates what a lot of QAnon people think and this is not me at all saying the QAnon people are correct they're wrong and I'm sure I really hope there's like a simpler solution for this or a simpler answer I guess you could say for why this came out like that but it's just weird. Okay, there's no way to really get around that, that it's just weird. And yeah, it's going to fuel all the people that think that, you know, Democrats and companies are child traffickers. Of course, like people like Kim Kardashian have a huge, you know, representation with Balenciaga. You have all the kind of liberal elites generally linked with Balenciaga. So yeah, I'm curious what the company does next, to be completely honest, because they're going to have to definitely do some saving of face and some really positive ad campaigns. Probably no kids and teddy bears, but yeah, we'll, we'll move on. I've stayed on this probably way longer than you guys want me to, but I've just found it interesting because like it, it does raise questions about the fashion industry, the modeling industry, all that stuff. And yeah, I mean, I guess if you were more conspiratorial, there's, there would definitely be conversations to have about this and I'm not going to go that far yet, but I do think it's troubling and, I do think there should be answers for why the company approved that and why the ad agency was trying to do that. Lots of questions, not enough answers. Only time will tell, I guess. Anyways, let's get into, I guess, more actual politics. <laughs> um, I want to briefly just talk about the Georgia runoff and why it's kind of blowing expectations in terms of turnout so far when early voting started. And then I want to talk about Haiti. And I want to talk about how the country is really in a tragic state of affairs that some people have said the carnage is closer to a civil war than anything, why it might fuel a refugee slash immigration crisis in the Americas, and why there's talks from the Biden administration with groups in the UN of sending armed forces, like a rapid task force, basically, to Haiti to help like bring stability there. And the Haitian government's asked for it. So first, I want to talk about Georgia, right? We have Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock, Herschel Walker's gotten somehow more, I don't even know the right word anymore. Like, he's the guy that baffles me because Trump, you know, spoke and speaks in word salads that sometimes are hard to comprehend. 
but Herschel Walker really does. And Herschel Walker almost needs like either a translator or like a translator and subtitles with him because sometimes I just don't know what the hell this guy is talking about. Like he definitely like I think it was someone on David Packman's podcast and show who said Herschel Walker just speaks in these blurps where he basically just spits out every talking point that the right has. So it kind of appeals to all the voters like he'll talk about transgender athletes. Then he'll talk about crime, corruption, Ukraine, you know, the election. Like, but he, he never has any like nuance or even any like tangible views about it. But he'll just spit out talking points. And then people go, oh, yeah, I agree with that. And it seems like he's really got into that. So Herschel Walker's been a good time lately. Uh, very unhinged, very strange. Attacking the character of Raphael Warnock, talking about how Christianity is important, all the fun stuff. Raphael Warnock, I don't think is super likable, but he does have a war chest of money and resources and connections, which I think will help him. But anyways, apparently as of now, early voting is blowing away, basically blowing away early predictions, and it's outpacing turnout in the early days of the general election, which is, which was, I guess, about a month ago now, right? The general election, yeah, early November. So they just, as of Monday have opened up early voting. So according to news reports, voting locations for the December 6th runoffs are now open in all 159 of the state's uh, counties through Friday, with more than 181,000 Georgians having cast their ballots, either in person or absentee through Sunday. And that's according to a state election data. And on top of that, black Georgians are really outpacing other demographic groups. And that's according to also that same data with 46% of the total turnout as of Sunday. So that's going to be important. Of course, you do have, I guess, you, you do have two black candidates, though I don't know how much appeal Herschel Walker actually has with that base. But I guess my initial thought would be let's not say just because black turnout's high, that's good for Warnock because nothing surprises me anymore, though, though that's probably what you would want to at least somewhat assume. And... Like, going off those numbers, though, yeah, that 46.3% that of total turnout being black voters is 8% above white voters in the total share of turnout so far. And that's interesting because white voters nearly double the share of the overall state population. Now, my theory on this, and I could definitely be wrong, I've been wrong a lot about a lot of the midterm stuff, though, is that I think Herschel Walker would probably appeal to the more white, like, Trump voter. And... If early numbers are showing that black Georgians are outpacing other demographic groups, maybe that means that this could be good for Raphael Warnock. Again, it's too early to tell, but in a state that is quite white, like Georgia, and you have high turnout from the black community, I just think that would probably go in Warnock's favor. And some more updates on the campaign. Like I said, we're not going to stick too much on this. But another update is that Warnock's campaign has announced, excuse me, that they are investing more than $1 million for an out-of-home advertising campaign. They are really trying to get people out there. They want to get people out to vote. They want to do GOTV, get out to vote campaigns. And it's going to be interesting to see, I mean, what we have exactly a week until it happens. Yeah, today's the 29th, so that should be good. And... <clears throat> Basically, both campaigns are also, and I think this is an interesting point that I was reading about, is that both campaigns are really trying to appeal to Brian Kemp, Governor Kemp voters, because we have to remember that he really did well in the midterms, right? Like, much like Ron DeSantis, he kind of blew it away. And, like, Kemp is interesting because he never was a stop-the-steal guy. He never agreed to, 
you know, go with Trump's election lies after the election in 2020. And he still did extremely well as basically a rock star. And I think that is really telling about about what it means to get his support. And the candidates appeal, both of them are trying to appeal to his supporters, right? And that what that tells me is that there's a lot of moderate swing voters who are expected to decide a lot of this election. And it's going to be interesting to see which side they go. Because I actually don't know if Brian Kemp's supporters actually would start voting for Herschel Walker. Obviously, yes, more of them will go for Herschel Walker than for Raphael Warnock, in my opinion. But Brian Kemp is not Herschel Walker, right? Brian Kemp has appealed to a lot more moderate voters. Herschel Walker speaks in some sort of weird dialect about all these election-related issues and about these Bible verses and you know, he watched a movie about a vampire last week and then realized werewolves are better and wanted to become one. He talks about how the monkey likes the grass that's greener on the other side of the hill. You don't know what the hell this guy's talking about most of the time. You really don't. And, of course, some people will vote for him because he's a Republican. But I do hope that some people won't. I am. It's, a, it's unfortunate, but it's the way things work that, of course, Brian Kemp is supporting Herschel Walker. They have the war chest that helped him win, and they have the war chest of the National Republican GOP caucus. So it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be very interesting to see. And uh, I personally right now see Warnock winning because Herschel Walker seems like one of these crazy candidates that generally lost in these midterms. So one can hope, especially when you have his gay far-right son coming out against him because the family had to run from him and, you know, he paid for all these abortions. One would hope. But again, you know, Trump has neo-Nazis and Kanye West in the White House last week before Thanksgiving. So I, I don't know if we can particularly have nice things anymore. So anyways, yeah, we'll have to keep that one going. We'll move on from the happy Georgia runoff and the Balenciaga child exploitation, whatever they're doing. I don't know. I want to talk about Haiti. There's an interesting report from this morning, I believe, or maybe it was last night, that basically discusses how some Biden officials are basically pushing to send armed forces to stabilize Haiti. And when I, excuse me, when I say armed forces, I don't actually mean U.S. military personnel, but some sort of U.N. military force to basically stabilize the region. I wanted to look into this a little bit and dive into what's happening. So first off, to start, we talked about this on the old podcast. I think Drew and I talked about this back in the summer of 2021. Um, a, a group of unknown attackers back at that time shot and killed the president of Haiti, who was Jovenel Moisi, and it was in his bedroom, private residence, gated community, no one's safe in Port-au-Prince, the capital anymore. That's what it seemed like. But this was back on July 7th, 2021. And since then... <laughs> You know, excuse my language, but it's been a shit show. The situation has become quite dire in the country. The government basically lost control of security. I talk about this and I beat it, beat it across everyone's heads. But basically, to have a stable country, there needs to be a monopoly on violence and a monopoly on force that the government maintains. When you lose that, you lose the stability of a country. And yeah, since the president was assassinated in 2021, gang warfare has intensified to almost what some people call a civil war. And from what I understand, after the assassination of Mosi, a new guy named Ariel Henry took over. The problem was that he was never confirmed by the parliament. And because of that and the subsequent events, a lot of the population viewed his position as illegitimate and didn't really accept him as president. Fun stuff, I know. 
And from here, gangs kind of filled the vacuum that this void created. Also, <laughs> a lot of the country's institutions were gutted, infrastructure was cut, and stability just became almost non-existent. And probably the best example I read was in the New York Times this morning, and it talks about how a gang war broke out in a place called Sit Soleil. Sit Soleil, I guess. Sorry, my French isn't good. And it's the largest slum in Haiti. It's pretty close to Port-au-Prince from what I've realized. And apparently a war broke out between two rival gangs. It lasted for two weeks. And along the way, hundreds of innocent people died. And they burned down entire neighborhood blocks. And this led to people fleeing the slums, moving to live on the streets in Port-au-Prince. And inevitably, this has created actually a very tragic situation of a refugee crisis inside of its own country. So now Port-au-Prince is dealing with people who have fled other parts of the country to come there, and it's a complete nightmare and a mess. And of course, there's no government, so they don't know what to do with it. So alongside this crisis, the leader, Henry, I guess some people would call the illegitimate leader, Henry, also had to raise fuel prices because, you know, that's been happening around the world because of our friend Vladimir Putin's little fun little invasion he did. And with fuel prices going up, that led to protests, anger, desperation, clearly because the country, like I said, is a mess. And this was the final straw in really plunging the country into something res resembling anarchy. I think anarchy sorry, would be probably the best way to describe this. And then the New York Times has another good, I don't know if good's the right word, it's a pretty, pretty damn depressing article, but it writes about how the cholera outbreak happened after this in Haiti. One of the worst out cholera outbreaks in Haitian history has occurred. That does happen when, you know, the water gets cut off, you don't have fresh water, the electrical grid, blah, 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 all that stuff happens. And the article notes in quotes here, in quotes, one of the gangs blocked the port through which most of the fuel comes into the country. That turned a bad situation into a crisis. Haiti doesn't have a functional electrical grid, so everyone runs, so everything runs on diesel generators. When there's no fuel, it impacts almost everything. Gas stations were closed. There was no trash collection in much of the capital, so it piled up in the slums. The water utility lost its ability to pump enough water, and aid workers couldn't bring in water to areas blocked by gangs. Experts believe this was a major contributor to the cholera outbreak. Yeah, of course. Colorado, Colorado, cholera, sorry, is something that comes from dirty water. And, yeah, interestingly, or depressingly again, I was watching an interview with a foreign news correspondent who covers Haiti, been to the capital recently, and he discussed how wealthy Haitians spend a lot of time in Miami or remain in Haiti, probably outside of Port-au-Prince, riding around in armored vehicles. Basically, like, it's so unstable there that if you want to live there, you literally have to probably pay for, like, armed security to go anywhere. The interesting thing, too, though, is that this reporter notes that some people think, and these aren't just like conspiracies or hunches, but there is evidence that Haitian elites are actually involved in helping some of these gangs stay afloat. And basically, it's become a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And yeah, if you're an elite, you can push forward your own personal interests by funding some of these gangs. And that's why the anarchy thing really seems to be happening here. Not good. Not good again, especially when people like that are prospering off of this. Either way, though, it sounds like whether you're rich or poor, no one is immune to threats of violence that is rampant throughout the cities, rampant throughout the country. Of course, if you're poor, it's much worse. Much, much worse. But it sounds like generally like a completely broken state to me. 
Now, this brings us to the report I was mentioning about Biden administration officials discussing the need to send foreign forces into Haiti to basically quell a potential immigration crisis and bring stability or, I guess, end anarchy. I don't know if stability is really the final goal here, but at least they could end some anarchy. There's a really great article from the New York Times called As Haiti Unravels, U.S. Officials Push to Send in an Armed Foreign Force. The article basically discusses how yeah, there's a fear of a mass exodus. Biden officials are pressing for a multinational force, but at the same time, they also don't want to send in U.S. troops, and they also haven't been able to persuade other countries to take the lead. So that's not surprising to me. I'm sure eventually if this was to come to fruition, it would be the U.S. taking the lead. That doesn't surprise me. The article also goes over the instability that has occurred since the assassination of Haiti's president. It also discusses how law enforcement have helped push back some of the gangs, but law enforcement are still in hiding, don't feel safe, etc. Like I said, the article also compares recent violence and carnage to that of a civil war, and it just seems like there is a sense of uncertainty and fear in the air that has led Biden officials and experts to really fear that there's a looming refugee migration immigration crisis that could occur involving, you know, Haitian immigrants coming to the United States. And we've already seen that grow. We really have because let me pull up the number here. Forgot to include it in the report, but I I have the number here. Um at sea more than 7,000 Haitians according to numbers were intercepted by the US Coast Guard from October 2021 through September of this year, and that was compared with 1,500 during the previous 12 months. So, And there's horrors on those journeys, so there's really fears of that growing. And of course, well, we know how the Republicans demagogue the border, and I do think we need border security. We do need to why there's so many know why there's so many failures there, no doubt, but I'm not sure if this is the solution. But anyways, yeah, there's fear in the air about a looming refugee immigration crisis. Apparently, the Haitian government, though, and I think this is the thing we need to remember, is that the Haitian government has actually asked for this multinational task force to aid the government. And this is why Biden officials are entertaining the idea and have a resolution going in front of the UN Security Council right now. I think that's something that's really important to note is that the the foreign government is asking for help here. And I guess the problem is that U.S. officials do not feel comfortable sending U.S. forces and there aren't many other nations willing to get involved. I think we have to take a moment and realize that this would be like, this would be like, let's say, this would be like the United States asking for like British special forces or a British task force to come over and help us create stability. It's basically like the government in Haiti admitting that they can't do this on their own. So that's something first to understand about this. And also from my understanding, this is controversial because you don't know if you really want to get a task force together because a UN peacekeeping mission came to Haiti in 2010 and brought cholera with them, which was the largest outbreak in the country's history. So that's also not a good look. Also, we have to remember that the U.S. has been, I guess you could say, fairly influential in Haiti for a long time. And there's, I guess, scars and trauma over the United States' long intervention in the country. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to get back in that. And there's a lot of backlash that could happen, negative side effects. What happens next, I'm really not sure. 
But what I do know is that this seems like a crisis in the making that will spill over throughout the rest of the region. Of course, like I don't have the time today to get into why Haiti is struggling, but it's a mixture of the fact that they still play, pay reparations to France, which is insane to me, that the Haitian Revolution was successful but has kind of put the country under for a long time, that imperialism and racism have not helped there. And there's a lot of things we could talk about that. But again, what happens next? There is a U.S.-backed resolution which urges the deployment of, in quotes, a rapid action force to Haiti, but it's been stalled in the U.N. Security Council, like I said, which is a big shocker, I know. Things always get stalled there, always, but we're not going to get into that. I also know that a migration crisis is looming and seems inevitable. And based on the investigations that are going to start in the United States House and the anger at the border, this could not be good for the Biden administration if it's true and things spill over. Of course, that's the least of the worries because obviously people are suffering in Haiti. Something crazy too, if there's anything else crazy to talk about, is that there are already ripples going on in parts of the world that do show me things could get worse, especially in terms of like racial politics, because the Dominican Republic shares a border with Haiti. I'm sure most of you know that. They share the same island, right? And it seems like the Dominican, like the DR government, is responding quite drastically and probably incorrectly to what is happening in Haiti. The, the government is basically cracking down on Haitian immigrants to the point where... <laughs> U.S. authorities recently said, in quotes, darker-skinned Americans were at risk of being targeted. It's like, basically, like, the hate, or the Dominican Republic government is so against having a refugee crisis with Haitian refugees that they're targeting people of darker complexions, basically. I don't know if there's a politically correct way to say that, because it just sounds awful, but... I think this will be a crisis in the making for sure, and we will just have to keep updated on that. So, yeah, you know, we've talked about some unique things today. I mean, I guess the good news that we started with is that the U.S. won the game against Iran and is moving on. So we can stick on something positive for a little bit. Now, obviously, the Balenciaga thing's weird. <laughs> um, the special election is going to be interesting, and Haiti's a tragic situation, and I hope it gets better, but it seems like the worst could be yet to come, and it's already bad in Haiti, and it might get bad for, or let's just say it might get worse for Haiti, but also bad for its neighbors. So anyways, uh, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, you know, all those things. So have a great day. Take care. We'll be back with another episode, and stay safe and sane. Adios. Adios.